Have you ever found yourself wondering about the role that Canadians played in old-time radio? Well, wonder no more. During the next 60 minutes, we'll delve into the careers of actors, writers, and directors who went abroad to find work, as well as those who stayed right here in Canada. Join me as together we explore Canadians in old-time radio. Welcome once again to Canadians in Old Time Radio. I'm Devin Wilkins, president and founder of COTRA, the Canadian Old Time Radio Alliance. Don't forget to check out our website at www.cotra.ca. You'll find all sorts of little bits of trivia and some clips from way back when, up there, and uh, you'll even find a calendar of births and deaths. Well, this week we're going to have an hour-long Made in Canada segment, and if uh, you have an interest in hockey, you'll enjoy this documentary called Great Moments in Hockey. It was narrated by Jack Dennett, who was a longtime newscaster and sportscaster. We don't know exactly when it was done, um, although we do know that it would have been before Jack's untimely death at age 59 in 1975. I think that I remember getting a floppy disc of it, and I don't mean floppy disc like we have for computers. I mean um, a, a record, but it, but it was it felt like a, a floppy disc. And I remember, I'm sure I remember getting one back uh, in my later years in school, and that would have been 67, 68, 69, that sort of thing. Anyway, it's called Great Moments in Hockey, and you will definitely hear voices from way back when. This music is the prelude, the introduction and it signals the start of the longest-running and most-listened-to program in the history of broadcasting, Hockey Night in Canada. This is the story of that program, of the man who started it all, and how it became a tradition and part of our heritage and culture. It's also the story of a love affair between a country and a game, the game of hockey. These are today's voices on Hockey Night in Canada. Bill Hewitt in Toronto. Martin moves up the center ice. Pass Armstrong, Armstrong roll it through. A pass right in front of the net. Stops. He scores! Up and scores for the lead. Stop. Danny Gallivan in Montreal. Moore goes to the corner. He digs it out. Gives it to Bellaball. He sidesteps the check. Over to Richard. Right in front of the net. He shoots. He scores. Jim Robson in Vancouver. He gets the puck. Throw it in front. Table and shoots. He scores. Familiar voices describing Canada's favorite game. Voices heard regularly on Canada's number one television show, Hockey Night in Canada. Of all the hockey voices, one stands alone. A voice that has thrilled millions for almost half a century. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Foster Hewitt, the voice of hockey. For almost 50 years, Foster's been describing the excitement of the game. It's a record unparalleled in all the annals of broadcasting. 
Early day hockey happenings fascinated Canadians. Even the Governor General of Canada, Lord Stanley of Preston, the son of the Earl of Derby, was an enthusiast. In 1893, he donated the Stanley Cup at a cost of £10 for annual presentation to the amateur hockey champions of Canada. Since 1910, the famous cup has been competed for exclusively by professional teams, and much of Canadian hockey history revolves around the highly prized trophy. In 1910, the National Hockey Association was formed, the forerunner to the NHL. The seventh man or rover was disappearing from the game, and players began wearing numerals on their sweaters for identification purposes. Arenas in Vancouver and Victoria installed artificial ice in 1912, and one of the odd rules of play prohibited a player from falling to the ice to block a shot, and if caught doing so, he was subjected to a $2 fine. In November of 1917, NHA franchise holders settled on a unique method for dealing with the owner of a Toronto team, a chap they considered troublesome. At a meeting in Montreal, they simply formed a new league, which they called the National Hockey League. A Toronto franchise was awarded, but it went to a more congenial partner. Only one sports reporter was at that meeting. He was Elmer Ferguson, then a cub reporter for the Montreal Herald. Later, on Hockey Night in Canada, Elmer Ferguson would become as famous as the players he wrote about. I covered that meeting just as I covered hockey since 1902, covered it for my newspaper. The Quebec franchise was transferred to the Toronto Arenas, and the Toronto Arenas promptly won the league title in the playoff with Canadians, went on to win the Stanley Cup. But I thought the most compelling and remarkable feat of the entire season was the scoring of Joe Malone, who in 20 games of the 22 scored the incredible total of 44 goals, an average of better than two goals per game. In March of 1923, Foster was a cub reporter on the Toronto Star. He was 19 years old and eager to please his employers. Perhaps that's why he was given a unique assignment one March day to broadcast a hockey game from Mutual Street Arena over the star's new radio station, CFCA. Basil Lake, the radio editor of the star, came up to me and said, you have another job tonight, you're going to broadcast the hockey game. Uh, apparently they had canvassed the entire sports department to get somebody to do it, and uh, for some reason or other no one was available, so I was the only one left, and uh, I didn't know enough to turn it down at the time, which I was rather fortunate I didn't, so I just went over there and, and did the game. And unfortunately for me, it went 30 minutes overtime. Speaking into a telephone, virtually unprepared and highly nervous, Foster hesitantly called the play between two senior hockey clubs, Toronto Parkdale and Kitchener. Here we are at Mutual Street Arena for our first broadcast ever on CFCA. I hope you're hearing us as we had lots of trouble here with the line. Over 8,000 are here to see the Kitchener and Parkdale Canoe Club teams fight it out to decide who will take on the Toronto Granites in the Eastern Canada Final and go west to play for the Allen Cup. Someone once said a cautious young man will plan his career. A lucky young man will walk right into one. Well, on that night in 1923, Foster Hewitt walked right into one of the most successful, exciting, and rewarding careers any Canadian ever had. One of the few men to remember his first broadcast is Frank Selke Sr. Right to my left was Foster encased in a little glass cupola, something like a telephone booth would be now, but it was glass on four sides. And because of he thought that the crowd noises should not be... Uh, included in the broadcast. He had the door closed and he was as hot as anybody could be. His sweat was pouring down. From there on, he became the voice of hockey. In Ottawa on July 1st, 1927, Canadians heard the first network broadcast. The bells in the Peace Tower were heard for the first time from coast to coast. Hockey suffered through some agonizing growing pains during the 20s. In 1925, the Hamilton team transferred to New York, where they became the Americans. 
A year earlier, the Boston Bruins had become the first American team to enter the NHL. In 1926, the NHL embraced 10 cities and played in two divisions. The schedule jumped from 24 games to 44 games. Forward passing was allowed in all three zones. There was one odd training order from Lester Patrick. He insisted his players drink a glass of hot water each morning, whether they needed it or not. There were no sad songs for Con Smythe. Smythe, dismissed as manager coach of the Rangers before he'd had a chance to prove himself, returned to Toronto and bought the Toronto St. Pat's franchise. Smythe was a battler. He had courage, and he had a vision. A vision of Toronto as the hockey capital of North America. One of his first decisions was to change the name of his team from St. Pat's to Maple Leafs. Any time we want a line held, any time we want a place taken, or any time we want a place retaken, we have the Canadians because we know they're going to do it. We call them the Canadoos. And the, the insignia we had was a Maple Leaf. And that's what I thought when we came back. We used to see all the units. They had the Maple Leaf somewhere on them. We thought that would be a great team and a great bunch of soldiers behind them. Smythe was convinced hockey couldn't fail. So convinced that he unveiled plans for a mammoth new ice palace. It would be a new home for his Leafs, the finest building of its kind in the world. Despite the crash on Wall Street, despite that period called the Great Depression, Smythe went stubbornly ahead with the construction of his hockey rink. Some called it Smythe's folly. They said he'd never fill the place. And one of the Leaf players, King Clancy, was among the skeptical. When we came in here to the gardens, it was like coming into a palace. Uh, I know over in the Mutual Street Arena you had a, a rough time taking a shower because you didn't know whether you were going to get hot water or cold water. And this was something to behold, a beautiful place. The seats uh, and the massive structure, the number of seats that we had here, it looked like three times what we had over in the Mutual Street Arena. And I used to say to the fellows, where are they going to get the people to fill this thing? Fill it they did. And on opening night, November 12th, 1931... A capacity house witnessed the Leafs open the gardens by bowing to Chicago. The game was historic for another reason. It marked the beginning of a new radio program, one that would become a Saturday night institution. Foster introduced the dignitaries at ice level, then made his first official trip to the gondola to call the play. It was the debut of Hockey Night in Canada. Well, we're all set now. All the opening ceremonies are over. Mr. Bickle is already given the long speech that has had the crowd on edge, and Primo Jackson and Conacher are skating out there, all ready to go for the this historic event where the NHL is starting in Maple Leaf Gardens. The first Leaf player to score a goal at the Gardens was the big bomber, Charlie Conacher. Primo gets the draw, pulls away over the left side, passes to Harvey Jackson. Jackson going down the left wing. He's over the blue line. He passes right in front of the net. Charlie Conacher shoots. He scores. That's a tying goal. The Hawks won the game, but Leaf fans were delighted with the new arena. They praised the kid line, and everyone from the patients at Christie Street Hospital to the kids in Cabbage Town talked about the broadcast. Foster was coming through loud and clear. Almost overnight, Saturday night became known as Hockey Night. Foster Hewitt's broadcast booth at Maple Leaf Gardens aroused the curiosity of hockey fans. We found that the best height, best location, was on the fifth floor. So we adapted that at the gardens to that height. And that's how we ended up on the, on the top part of the main beams at the gardens. Of course, they called it the gondola because an advertising man suggested that it was like the gondola of an airship. The first time I ever went out, uh, I went out on my hands and knees. From the gondola, Foster introduced the hockey broadcasts. His famous greeting... Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. ...was a signal for all activity to cease across the country. In Montreal, Foster's counterpart was Charlie Harwood, who looks back fondly on those unpredictable broadcasts from the forum. These were very interesting first years, uh, very unsophisticated. You might all, I call them the haywire days of broadcasting because we sat uh, right over the south entrance of the forum, St. Catherine Street entrance, and we were uh, surrounded by the crowd, really, uh, so low down that anybody who came down the ice had a great opportunity to knock our head off with a puck. 
and the people around you were forever chit-chatting back and forth, and you wondered whether some of their kind remarks or some of their unpublishable remarks would get out over the air on your microphone, because these microphones would pick up all kinds of things. Boston's Eddie Shore was the central figure in a shocking incident at the Boston Garden on December 12, 1933. Shore crashed Ace Bailey of the Leafs to the ice, and Bailey's skull was fractured. And he's lying on the ice now, really injured, apparently, from the attack. Ace Bailey. Shore was in behind our blue line. He was offside, so he had to get out before the play got down there. So, as I am told, on the way out, Shore knocked my feet out from underneath me with his stick. And the result was the head hit the ice first, and she split on both sides. King Clancy, who was on the ice at the time, had a slightly different version. As I remember that night uh, in Boston, uh, when Bailey was so badly hurt, it was just in the heat of the game. He was coming from behind Bailey and put his knee in behind Bailey and his his elbow on his on his forehead, and he turned him upside down. Uh, Bailey, of course. Uh, got a severe concussion, and, of course, it put Ace out for the rest of his days. He never played another hockey game. But I'm sure that Shore didn't mean to hurt Bailey. He meant, he meant to hit Bailey, there's no question about this, and give him a good knock. But uh, I know that the intention wasn't to hurt Bailey. Fortunately, Bailey recovered from his injury, but he never played hockey again. Several weeks later, at Maple Leaf Gardens, an Ace Bailey benefit night was held and it turned out to be the forerunner to the annual NHL All-Star Game. Bailey was there, of course, and so was Eddie Shore. For a few moments, it looked as though the crowd might turn against Shore. Some of them came well prepared. The fans were there, loaded with cans and bolts and everything to take some action against Mr. Shore. But that uh, meeting on the ice of Shore and I shaking hands and possibly put my arms around them, I, that settled the crowd down to, well, everything is all right. I never had any grudge against them. That could have happened to anybody. Well, we've just introduced all the stars on the ice at Maple Leaf Gardens. The gardens is really tense, as this is the moment when Shore is to meet Bailey. Shore is over there on the left. He starts moving over to the microphone. The crowd are beginning to react. There's a tremendous roar from the crowd as the two meet, and Bailey puts his arm around Shore, and everything is fine. The crowd are really enjoying this reunion after a terrible incident that happened in Boston. In 1935, the kid line of the Leafs finished 1-2-3 atop the Canadian Division scoring race. At times, they were almost unstoppable. Primo gets the draw right off the bat from Boucher and moves over onto the left wing. He's skating down there. Jackson fails to follow up, and Conacher is moving over onto the right side. A year later, a playoff game at the Forum produced the longest overtime game in hockey history. The Detroit Red Wings met the Maroons in a game that ended at 2.25 in the morning when Mud Brunito, participating in his first playoff game, scored the winner. The Red Wings move up towards the Montreal line. Hetkill Ray takes the puck, shifts to the left. Alan Shields trying to head him off. Kilray loses control of the puck. It dribbles over towards Mud Brunito, who comes tearing in. Brunito takes a whack at it. He scores! Foster remembers the 30s at a time when there were many great lines. In those days, we talked of lines. There are always three top-notch hockey players on one line. Now we have a hard time uh, having one. Uh, in other words, it's an individual now, like Bobby Hull or Mahovlich or whoever you want to uh, pick on in this, it's this league, and they're very limited. Uh, but in those days, you had the Boucher-Cook line, the Crout line, the Kid line... Uh, Mosienko and the Bentleys. Oh, uh, tremendous lines. There were times when Foster talked with hockey's biggest stars, Charlie Conacher. Charlie, it's uh, conceded that you have the hardest shot of the National Hockey League. I think a lot of people would be very interested to know just how you hold your stick. How do you get them away so fast? Well, uh, I 
I hold a stick that's about the same as anyone else, Foster, but I think I snapped away with my wrist a little quicker. Red Horner. How does it feel to be called a bad man, Red? Oh, there's nothing I can do about it, Foster. I get it anyway. You know what uh, is amazing to most people? The fact that you can play hockey and play defense at that and do a good job of it with a broken hand. How can you protect that hand from the wear and tear of a hockey game? Well, Dr. Rush has uh, <coughs> fixed up a cast, a plaster Paris cast for me, Foster. It reaches from my elbow down to my knuckle. It only allows me to grip the stick between my thumb and the cast, but proves out quite satisfactory. Dick Irvin. How about you, Dick? Dick, you've coached the Chicago Blackhawks and the Toronto Maple Leafs for two years. You certainly know your hockey players. And uh, what have you considered... This is the best team the Toronto Maple Leafs of last year or this year's edition. Well, I think this year's team is about the gamest bunch of athletes I ever had any connection with. Owing to so many injuries, while the boys are putting up a wonderful battle. Lester Patrick. Hey, uh, Lester, how is hockey going over in the United States? Well, Foster, I uh, tell you, the, it's remarkable the way the game of hockey has been accepted into the hearts of the great American centers. And I honestly believe that his possibilities have merely been scratched. Well, uh, certainly the Rangers has increased the popularity of the game in New York. How would you really rate the Rangers of this year with other years? Well, in my opinion, the Rangers team of 1932-33 is the most star-pleasing, colorful, and polished machine that's ever been my pleasure to handle. That's quite a trip. I guess I'll see Ching Johnson now. Yes, Ching Johnson. Uh, what's the hardest series you've been in in the playoffs? Well, I think the uh, series of 1928 was the Montreal Maroons, the hardest series I've ever been in. Certainly, uh, brother and a brother, I believe you've been picked on the all-star team for three years, is it? Which uh, city would you sooner play in? Well, I think I'd rather play in Montreal than any city. Where are those cooks? What do find them? The Cook Brothers. They're back here in the corner. You two come together. You know, it's amazing to hockey fans how, that you, how you can work together the way you do. How do you really do it? Well, we get along pretty well together. We've been brothers. We've played together for 11 years. Uh, six years before we came to the New York Rangers. And uh, since then, uh, we've got along wonderfully well. Uh, Bill, surely you have a few hints to the younger hockey players. You know, how you drill them in there and have led the league. So many times. Couldn't you give the uh, youngsters just a few tips how to put them in there? Well, the only thing I can say to the youngsters coming up is to uh, put the puck of the goaltender in. There's the bell, boys. Come on, last period. The most dynamic forward in hockey during the 30s was Howie Morenz, whose blazing speed and shot would have made him a superstar in any era. And now he's flying as he comes up on the right side. He moves up the center ice, over the blue line. He shoots, he scores! A beautiful shot by Morenz, who was off balance as he went around Horner on that side. Foster considered Morenz to be in a class by himself. Morenz could really just about lose Bobby Hull in speed. Uh, that is over the full distance. Howie's teammate, R.L. Joliet. Morenz was the fastest player in the league in those days, and I believe if he played today, he'd be uh, rated in the class with Bobby Hull. It'd be a great, uh, a wonderful competition between the two as who is the fastest player, I believe. Morenz was known and nicknamed by the American reporters the Babe Ruth of hockey. And one time he... He told me that once he couldn't play hockey anymore, he may as well be dead. King Clancy. The greatest player I ever saw or ever played against, and that goes for everybody uh, that I've seen since I played and up to today, has to be Howie Lorenz. I don't think there's anybody uh, that I've ever seen that could start and, and get moving as fast as Howie Morenz. He could start on a 10-cent piece and leave you five cents change. That's the kind of a player he was. And he could shoot a puck as hard as any man ever shot a puck in the National Hockey League. The number one defenseman of the day was rough, tough Eddie Shore of Boston. 
The puck is in the Boston zone. Eddie Shore moves over from the corner after Clapper had cleared the puck to him. Now Shore starts lumbering up the ice, skating over onto the right wing, up to center ice, moving in close. Clancy moves over to cut him off, but, Ch- but Shore has it, and the puck is right in front of the net. He shoots, he scores. No chance on that one as Shore just bowled his way right through. Eddie Shore, I don't think there's ever been a more colorful villain in in hockey and uh he was a darling of boston every place else he went they wanted to crucify him so he had all the color he, he had everything that you could think of clancy too has a vivid memory of the bruin great he roughed me up here and there hit me with body checks cross checks i will say that he never used a butt end on me but uh he fouled me as many times as I fouled him. And as I say right today, he's, a, he's a, a real good friend of mine. In the spring of 1942, the Maple Leafs completed the greatest comeback in Stanley Cup play. After losing the first three games in the finals to Detroit, the Leafs roared back with four straight victories. Veteran Sweeney Schreiner paced the Leafs with two goals in their 3-1 to final game win. If one game stands out in Schreiner's memory... It was that one. Before I scored the tying goal, Detroit went ahead 1-0, and I tied it up, uh, make it 1-1, and Pete Langell got the winning goal, and I got the clincher. I got two out of the three that night. We beat them 3-1. Bob Golden, then a young Leaf defenseman, was thrilled beyond words. We started off rather poorly. Detroit got the first goal, I remember, and then Dave Schreiner tied it up, and in the uh, second period, Pete Langell scored the winner, and I can still see it going in the net past Johnny... Mowers, who was miles out of his net, uh, making a save on uh, Schreiner. And then Schreiner got the clincher late in the third period. And uh, people say, how can you remember that far back? But things like that, I don't think you ever forget. Right after the game, Leaf captain Silaps was interviewed by Hot Stove League members. The Detroit Red Wings are really a hockey club. And uh, baby Wiener Schreiner came through in the third period for us and, and won the game in the championship for us. But it's the same at uh, I'd like to give the Detroit team a great deal of credit. They're, they're really playing hockey. The late Dick Irvin, who had an outstanding reputation as a hockey coach, was lured to Montreal in 1940. His job was to restore the last place Canadiens to a hockey powerhouse. It wasn't long before Irvin made a move that impressed hockey people everywhere, particularly in Montreal. Frank Selke recalls that event. Dick's most important act as coach of the Canadians, was to form the punchline consisting of Elmer Lock at center, Toblake at left wing, and Morris Richard at right wing. They were, first of all, the greatest scoring line in the game, and many of them think they're the best line ever. Chicago boasted that their line of Bill Mosienko and the Bentley brothers was every bit the equal of the punchline. Penguin intercepts, clears to Max Bentley. He's right in close. He shoots. He scores! A Leaf rookie named Gus Bodner was jittery before stepping on the ice to face the Rangers in October of 1943. But in 15 seconds, his name was in the record book. And Bodner races in fast. He gets a shot from the side and bounces back to him off the collie. He drives it right back. He shoots it forward. The fastest goal by a rookie. A year later, Rocket Richard went on a goal-scoring spree. Recovers the puck, clears it ahead to Maurice Richard, who's in flight. Richard goes skating down the left side. He cuts over onto the right wing. He moves in close. He shoots his scores. The Rockets' 45th goal erased the record of 44 set by old-timer Joe Malone, who scored his in just 22 games. And the Rockets' 50th came against Boston in the last game of the season. Crosses the blue line, clears out in front. Locke gets that puck. He passes over the right side. Richard sweeps in fast. He shoots. He scores! An unbelievable feat. 50 goals in 50 games. In the playoffs of 1944, Rocket Richard stole the show again. As Montreal beat Toronto 5-1 to in the second game of the semifinals, Richard scored all five goals in the Montreal Rock. Moves in on the left side. He clears it across the top lake. Murray Sh- Richard is carrying in fast on the right wing. He picks up the puck. He's right in close. And he scores! During one winter, Foster Hewitt stepped back from his microphone one night and gave way to a young successor. 
Son Bill was given a chance to follow in father's footsteps, and the Leafs' young Canada night became a tradition. On September 6th, 1946, Clarence Campbell, then 41, a former NHL referee and Rhodes Scholar with a distinguished war record, succeeded Red Dutton as president of the NHL. Players drifted back from wartime service, and prior to the start of one season, Lester Patrick said he planned to alternate two goaltenders in New York. Few thought the idea would someday become the rule rather than the exception. Dick Irvin, one of the game's great coaches, died of cancer in May of 1957. Soon after, the Rockets scored his 500th goal, and his former coach was uppermost in his thoughts. A few weeks before he died, I went to see him in the hospital, and he told me, hurry up to score that 500 goal before I die. He never saw it. That's why that night, when we played against Chicago, and I scored my 500 goal, my thoughts went to the one and only Vic Irvin. Years earlier, in 1937, the hockey world was stunned to learn that Howie Morenz, hospitalized with a broken leg, died suddenly of a heart attack. Two days later, over 25,000 fans filed slowly past his coffin placed at center ice in the Montreal Forum. Elmer Ferguson was among the mourners. People came from all over for the, for the uh, funeral itself, of course, that was the most impressive service in there. Howie was a very grand person. Personally, there wasn't a nicer guy in hockey who never did anything to hurt anybody. With expansion of the NHL came shocking news from Minnesota in January of 1968. Bill Masterton, a 29-year-old forward, died of a fractured skull after colliding with a rival player in a game against Oakland. It was the first hockey death in NHL play since the league was formed in 1917. Frank Selke, Jr., then president of the Oakland club, was a witness to the fatality. It was a very innocent type play, the kind of thing that happens a dozen times in a game. Ron Harris, the Seals' right winger, came across to cut Masterton off, and he hit him solidly from in front. The check knocked Bill backwards, off balance, and when he fell, he struck the back of his head on the ice. He was knocked out and never did regain consciousness. The real tragedy of the accident was that only a game or two before, Bill had stopped wearing a helmet. After a so-so rookie season in which he scored a mere seven goals, Gordy Howe showed signs of maturing into a big leaguer with loads of ability. Howe's boss, Jack Adams, was well aware of his young star's potential. He's a big fellow. His reflexes are great. He loves the game. He, he could uh, play a couple other positions. He's, he's just one of those great, great athletes. The 40s closed out with tempers igniting at every turn. Con Smythe snapped at his goalie, Turk Broda, we're not running a fat man's club, and ordered the netminder to shed seven pounds. Three Montreal players were arrested for fighting with fans in Chicago. Clarence Campbell imposed a $1,000 fine on Montreal's Ken Reardon after Reardon declared he would see that New York's Cal Gardner would receive 14 stitches in the mouth. Some of Reardon's mail was sent care of the penalty box, Montreal Forum. Gordy Howe was seriously injured in a game with Toronto. Howe was involved in a play with Leaf captain Ted Kennedy. Howe is moving over from the other wing. He's right close. They jammed together. Howe seemed to miss him as he tried to crash him into the boards. And Howe is injured and is lying on the ice, apparently hitting his head on the board. A few months later, Howe was back patrolling right wing and scoring a key goal in the All-Star game. Passing back to Ted Lindsay. Lindsay passes up from the backboards to Gordy Howe, who scores on Charlie Rayner of the New York Rangers. In 1951, Montreal and Toronto met in the Stanley Cup Finals, setting the stage for one of the most dramatic winning goals in Stanley Cup history. The hero of the hour was Bill Barilko of the Leafs. His winning effort would be his final play in the NHL. Montreal McNeil cleared off to the side. He passed right out to Barilko. He's on the left wing. He shoots his score! A few weeks later, Barilko died tragically on a fishing trip. 
In March of 1952, Bill Mosienko established a record that has stood for many years. Mosienko scored three goals in 21 seconds as Chicago beat New York 7-6. to six. Across the New York line, Gardner drops the puck to Mosienko. He's going right in on goal. He shoots, he scores! In April of 1952, the powerful Detroit Red Wings won eight straight games in the playoffs, knocking off Toronto four straight in the semifinals, and then demolishing Montreal in similar fashion in the finals. Manager Jack Adams called this club the greatest Detroit team of all time. Detroit leading Montreal 3 to nothing. We have five seconds left in the game. Howe at center over to Lindsay. One second. The game is over. Detroit wins the game 3 to nothing, And the Stanley Cup. The Canadians were right back in the Stanley Cup hunt a year later. And it was veteran Elmer Locke who scored the winning goal in overtime against Boston. It was the only goal of the hockey game. Smith from the corner. Passes it out. It's grabbed by Locke. He shoots. He scores! Television moved into Maple Leaf Gardens during the 1952-53 season, with the telecast starting at 9.30, catching the action midway through the second period. Thompson clears over to Hannigan, who's out there with Hazard, Nesterenko, and Armstrong. Hannigan with the puck over to Nesterenko. Nesterenko on the right side. His shot is weak, and White covered him. Hannigan getting it back. To... There was great joy in Montreal and throughout Quebec in 1953. The most publicized junior player in history, Jean Beliveau, finally agreed to turn pro with the Montreal Canadiens. Beliveau's decision followed a year of senior hockey in Quebec City, where he was idolized. Our hockey night in Canada microphones and cameras covered the actual signing of the contract. Now you must be very happy on this great occasion. I'm very happy. And, uh, <laughs> and since I was young, uh, I listened to the hockey game Saturday, Saturday night, and I never thought one day I can play for this team. But at the end, I want to thank Dick Irvin for the good words. That During the 1952-53 season, Gordie Howe fell one goal shy of the Magic 50 mark, and Ted Kennedy of the Leafs achieved a milestone with his 200th career goal. Ron Stewart goes to the corner. He centers it in front. There's Kennedy. He shoots. He scores! Never in the long history of the National Hockey League was spectator interest so inflamed as it was a year later in Montreal. On March 13, 1955, Rocket Richard attacked Boston defenseman Hal Laco with his stick and then punched linesman Cliff Thompson. Clarence Campbell quickly suspended Richard for the remainder of the season, including the playoffs. It is a type of conduct which cannot be tolerated by any player, star or otherwise. In the result, Richard will be suspended from all games, both league and playoff, for the balance of the current season. Montreal fans were in an uproar. The suspension cost Richard the scoring title, one crown that had always eluded him, and it touched off one of the ugliest scenes in all hockey history, the famous St. Patrick's Day riot at the Forum. The league president, despite threats from enraged fans, insisted on attending the next game in Montreal against Detroit. And I noticed down there in the south end, just behind the Detroit goal, Fan coming down to get an autograph from Mr. Campbell. He has a program in his hand. Oh, he hits Mr. Campbell with the program. There's confusion in that area. Now there's a lot of smoke down there behind the goal. Apparently, a smoke bomb has been thrown. While panic was narrowly averted inside the forum, a mob outside the arena became angry beyond belief and finally uncontrollable. We're at the corner of Fort and St. Catherine. That sound is the sound of breaking plate glass windows. That crowd tonight is in an ugly mood. They're moving east away from the Forum, down St. Catherine Street. City police are now forming behind them, and there's not a window left. At playoff time, it hurts not to be in the game with the boys. However, I want to do what is good for the people of Montreal so that no further harm will be done. I would like to ask everyone to get behind the team and help the boys to win from Rangers and Detroit. The following season got underway and there were changes in the telecast. Foster Hewitt turned over the play-by-play -play to Son Bill and the Hot Stove League format was dropped. Early in the season, Rocket Richard scored his 500th goal. Moore goes to the corner. He digs it out, gives it to Bellaball. He sidesteps the check. Over to Richard, right in front of the net. He shoots, he scores! Richard dedicated that goal to his former coach, Dick Irvin. 
With the 50s drawing to a close, there was unhappiness in Toronto. The Leafs needed a shake-up, and they soon got it, when an unknown hockey executive, George Punchimlack, was brought in to straighten things out. The Leafs grabbed Bert Olmsted from Montreal at the draft meetings, and they signed an aging minor league goaltender, Johnny Bauer, formerly with Cleveland. At 33, Bauer thought he might have a year or two left. Under Imlach's lashing, the Leafs made a dash for a playoff berth. But before they slipped in ahead of the Rangers on the last day of the season, Ranger coach Phil Watson offered this observation on Punch. Well, I don't care much for Punch. I really mean it. He gave me a lot of trouble in Quebec City, and I thought I was rid of him. Now he's back in the National Hockey League, and I'm out, and i got to suffer and bear it. And the guy is very smart, and he's a good coach and a good manager, and I don't like him. Olmstead and Bauer were the first of Imlac's elder statesmen. Later, he would acquire Red Kelly and Alan Stanley, Jerry Eamon and Larry Regan, but the key player in his early success with the Leafs was the goaltender, the amazing Johnny Bauer. of the game. Johnny Bauer is holding the Leafs up there with some spectacular work. Another goalie, Jacques Plante, already known as a hockey innovator, began experimenting with a face mask. In New York one night, Plante stopped an Andy Bathgate shot with his face. He retired for stitches and returned carrying additional protection. And now, here come the teams back onto the ice. The Montreal Canadiens fighting from the far side, and here's Jacques Plante. And he's wearing a mask. That's the first time we've seen a goalie... Years later, in a St. Louis uniform, Plant would bless the day he introduced the mask. It was credited with saving his life in a playoff game against Boston. When Montreal went gunning for five in a row, they met the Leafs in the finals. Punch Imlach predicted a Leaf victory. Well, I said that uh, we'd beat Boston in six, and it took us seven games to beat Boston. I guess I got mixed up a little... Maybe the crystal ball was a little hazy. Probably that we'll beat Montreal in six. And Blake answered, I won't make any predictions. We'll play the best we can. Anyway, predictions are for gypsies. It was in this series that the Rockets scored his final goal. Maurice Richard finally came through there with a beautiful goal, and he has that Age and injuries were catching up to Rocket Richard, and after the Canadians swept to their fifth straight Stanley Cup in the spring of 1960, the Rocket decided he'd had enough. The last year when I went to training camp, uh, I was about 15, 20 pounds overweight, and uh, it was kind of hard to play with kids like uh, Henry, my brother, and Dickie Moore that were 15 years and I, uh, younger than I was, and I was uh, getting scared of getting boot out of their form. According to many hockey experts, those Montreal teams from 1955 through 1960 were the greatest teams ever assembled. And in 1960, Montreal duplicated the Detroit sweep of 1952. The Canadians won eight straight playoff games, eliminating first Chicago and then Toronto. Montreal fours to rather nothing, and the Montreal Canadiens win the Stanley Cup for the fifth consecutive year. The applause in Detroit in 1960 was reserved for Gordie Howe. That assist by Gordie Howe, the 1,092nd point of his career, and he eclipses the previous record held by Rocket Richard. In August of 1961, hockey officials from all over North America gathered in Toronto for the official opening ceremonies of the Hockey Hall of Fame. Clarence Campbell officiated, and even the Prime Minister showed up. And I declare officially open this Hockey Hall of Fame. One man elected to the Hall of Fame never played the game professionally, never refereed, never owned a team. He talked his way in. Frank Selke explains the selection of Foster Hewitt. Normally, we don't have a place in the Hall of Fame for broadcasters, television people, sports writers, no matter how worthy they might be in their own profession. So Foster could only get in one way, and that was his tremendous contribution to the game of hockey. He rates as a builder. Foster was moved almost beyond words. The effect was kind of overwhelming. I uh, 
first thing I knew, uh, I could feel a few uh, tears starting to show, and uh, it took me uh, a good 24 hours to uh, get back to normal. Fiery Toe Blake found himself on Clarence Campbell's carpet after he struck Dolph MacArthur, an NHL referee. Blake was fined $2,000 for his display of temper. It is the stiffest fine that uh, a coach or a player has ever had in the National Hockey League. But at the same time, I, I think I'm very fortunate that uh, I didn't get any suspension attached to it. Uh, after all, I know I did something wrong. Uh, I went out of my way to do uh, to do it, and I know the rules. I know the, uh, everything that's attached to it. I just naturally have myself to blame. That's all there is to it. The game that upset Blake so much was a semifinal thriller between Montreal and Chicago. It went into three overtime periods before Murray Balfour scored the winner. The rebound to Vakita at the side of the net. He slides it back to the point of Pilat. Here's a screenshot. A scramble in front of the net. He goes to Balfour. He shoots. He scores! The brightest scoring star of the early 60s was Bobby Hull, who tied the record of 50 goals in 1962. Along the board, picked up by Fleming. Fleming passes the quick left foot to Bobby Hull. Run the out of the Oh, he scores! Punch a shrewd trader and manipulator, guided Toronto to three Stanley Cups in a row beginning in 1962. Those were exciting years for all the Leaf fans across the country. The goal, uh, I thought we were had the best of the play, and uh, we were strong enough to come back and tie it up and go ahead. And uh, I thought it was one of our better games here in Chicago. A pass, Armstrong. Armstrong rolled it through. A pass right in front of the net. Duff, he scores, Duff! Here's Keon and Armstrong going in. Here's Keon right in. He scores! In one Stanley Cup game, rugged defenseman Bob Bond scored the winning goal in overtime while playing on a broken ankle. Stop by Pulford, back to Bond, on shoot, oh, he scores! And the Toronto Maple Leafs! One of the Leafs' brightest stars was Frank Mahovlich, for whom Jim Norris offered the Leafs a cool million dollars. Well, I was uh, shocked about it all. Uh, the morning uh, of the deal... I received a phone call from my dad waking me up in the morning saying that I was sold to Chicago for a million and uh, I had to check with the paper if it was 100000 or a million. I wasn't too <laughs> sure in the uh, zero. The 60s provided so many big plays and memorable events. There was Gordie Howe's 545th goal, breaking Richard's right record. McNeil coming up over the line. A pass to Howe. A shot. Score! Howe picks the lower corner and there it is. How had this to say about his record-breaking feat? It came about in a, a kind of a funny manner, and I put it in the short side, I believe. And going in behind the net, I think I tried to react like a, a, a kid, which I was at that time. And I, I threw my hands and jumped in the air, and I took the biggest flop I ever did. So Terry Sawchuk became the all-time shutout king in 1964. Shoot, Sawchuk kicks it out into the corner. Bellamo quickly following in into the goal crease. Sawchuk clears that away. And the game is over. Terry Sachuk has shut out the Canadians' final score, 2 to nothing. for Sachuk, his 95th career shutout. In 1965, Jean Beliveau scored the cup-winning goal for Montreal against Chicago. And Beliveau became the first winner of the Conn Smythe Trophy, awarded to the most valuable player in the playoffs. Now, it is also a great pleasure for me to present to you for the first time the new Conn Smythe Trophy as the outstanding player in the playoffs. Congratulations. Gordie Howe scored his 600th goal in 1965. Bergman, over to McKinney. McKinney sidesteps the check. Feeds it over to Howe right in front of the goal. He shoots. He scores for Gordie Howe, the 600th regular season. Bobby Hull set a new single-season goal-scoring record in 1966 by scoring 54 goals. Howe goes to the corner, passes in front of Hay. He fakes the shot, gets it back to Bobby Hull. There's a tremendous shot by Hull. He scores! And Bobby Hull's 54th goal. The best young hockey player in the world was an Oshawa junior, Bobby Orr, from Perry Sound, who at 15 was a star in the OHA. Ward Cornell interviewed Bobby during a hockey night in Canada telecast. Now, what about the uh, style of play, Bobby? Uh, have you tried to 
pattern yourself after any particular nice one to do? Oh, I like to follow. I play defense myself, and I like to watch all the defensemen. I like to watch Tim Horton for Toronto, and uh, I really think a lot of Terry Harper in Montreal. Well, that's an interesting decision. In the 1968-69 season, Bobby Hull broke his own record and scored 58 goals. He knocked it up to the blue line, intercepted there by Joe Marat. Marat over to Stapleton. Back to Bobby Hull. Right in front of that. Hull shoots. He scores! Bobby Hull scores! Tony Esposito, drafted by Chicago from Montreal, proved that ex-college players could indeed shine in the NHL when he chalked up a record 15 shutouts in 1969-70. Dave Cleon breaks it over the Chicago Blue Line. He's cutting in the left wing. He shoots. Oh, and Tony Esposito lunges out and grabs that puck and holds it for a faceoff. A great save by Tony Esposito. Boston's Phil Esposito topped Bobby Hull's record of 58 goals. Picked up by Kenny Hodge in the corner. Passes back to Ted Green at the Blue Line. Green the defense. Esposito. Phil Esposito shoots. Scores! And that's number 59 for Phil Esposito. Esposito offered this comment on his achievement. There was one thing that uh, I had going for me, and was that that was the fact that we had an awful lot of games left to play. And uh, I knew sooner or later I was going to be lucky enough to score the 59th goal. But it was a great thrill to score it out there because I felt that the people out there hadn't seen that much hockey. And I thought, well, it'd be great to score it in Boston because of the fans that are my fans, uh, but the, the standing ovation that the Los Angeles people gave me was a thrill in itself. The most explosive hockey club in the world as the 60s came to a close was Boston. Over to Sandfield, back of the other point to Orr, a shot, he scores! The Bruins had Orr and Esposito and a dozen other top stars, and they won the Stanley Cup in 1970, whipping St. Louis Blues in straight games in the finals. Sanderson's drive again is wide. Kept in by Orr. Orr feeds Sanderson behind the net. Back to Orr. He scores! He scores! The Bruins' dressing room was just what you'd expect of a team that had just won ten straight playoff games. Oh, beautiful, Don. Just great. No kidding. Everybody feels fantastic. Eddie Westfall. Oh, I tell you, it's been a long, long time coming for me. And... Uh... I don't know what else to say. Hey, Eddie Johnson. Terrific. Oh, this is great. Show from great show of my life. Great bunch of guys. And not a greater guy could have scored a goal. Swope. Winning coach Harry Sinden stunned everybody right after the series by announcing his plans to retire from hockey. Looking back, Hockey Night in Canada can reflect on the highlights and the sidelights of the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s. The man who started it all... Foster Hewitt. Broadcasting has been my life. It's given me the opportunity to travel all over our country and to meet some very wonderful people. I get a kick out of going west every year, visiting small localities. You meet all types, and they speak to you as if they've known you all their lives. This is a real big thrill, and I've enjoyed every minute of it. So that's our story up to now. But as long as hockey is played, no matter where, Hockey Night in Canada will be there bringing you the spectacle that is hockey. The grandest game of them all.
I do hope that you'll be able to join me next time for another edition of Canadians in Old Time Radio. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now. If you've enjoyed the shows you've heard during the past hour, be sure to tune in again next week, same time, same station, when once again, we'll listen to programs that are remembered today thanks to the involvement of Canadians in old-time radio. This is Devin Wilkins speaking.